Amen. And uh, ages five and down are dismissed. We've got uh, exits are here and here. They're going to take you to the same place upstairs. Uh, but ages five and down can go up to their classrooms, which no matter how mouse-like they walk, it inevitably will sound like more like elephants uh, coming from upstairs. So just to warn you, there are not elephants upstairs. Um, all right, my name is uh, Pastor Justin. I think I already said that. I'm sorry, we've been a little helter-skelter this morning. But um, we've been walking through, if you're, if you're new with us or haven't been in a while, um, we've been walking through the book of Matthew. We're going to continue to do so today. We're going to be in Matthew 17. The ESV version will be on the screen uh, for the most part today. And uh, we're talking about the king's power over evil. The king's power over evil. When I was in high school, I was attending a large conference in California uh, with our youth group right here uh, from Peninsula Grace. And I was sitting in our dorm room, uh, me and my close friend, and it had been an intense week. We were sharing with each other some of our struggles. Um, he was telling me some of what he was just going through as a Christian teenager and the sins he was dealing with. And all of a sudden, he started to violently shake. And his eyes started darting everywhere, and he was sweating, and, and he was um, sort of just kind of losing control, just became super fidgety. And as usual, my cool, calm, and collected self ran screaming out of the room. Uh, I ran and grabbed our youth pastor, brought him back in with me, and we sat down with my friend and my youth pastor. We just prayed with him, and he said, if there is, if there is a demon in, in this room right now, if there is, is some sort of a demonic oppression going on, I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus, you've got to go. And as we prayed with my friend, we instantly started to see his demeanor change. Now, what was happening there? Was that just a panic attack? Was there demonic impression going, oppression going on? My mom told me about a time uh, that she and her friends were in the basement, and uh, she had heard um, this, this thing you could do called light as a feather, stiff as a board. Um, and, and if everybody put a finger underneath uh, this person laying down on the ground and said that over and over again, light as a feather, stiff as a board, light as a feather, that person would actually start to levitate it. And so, so the group of people did that, and it actually started to work. And it freaked them all out. And they all started running upstairs. You can see where I get my demeanor, cool under fire, right? And, and now listen, this wasn't some cult. This wasn't some weird thing going on. This was a bunch of church kids in the basement going up to their Christian parents. What was going on here? What were they playing with? I was training to be a missionary overseas, and uh, we had a guest teacher uh, who was fr uh, had been a missionary on the field for years in uh, Papua New Guinea. And this, this was a culture um, that was much more... Um, they had a much more active belief and practice in the spirit world. We would call this an, an animistic culture. And he said, I have seen things, I have experienced things that talking to a, a, an American classroom, you guys, I'm not even going to get into the stories because I know you wouldn't believe me. You would write off what I'm saying as a hoax, as, as make-believe. And, and ironically, we in the Western church, we, we really don't believe in a lot of the demonic or spiritual activity, which, which is kind of funny because our whole belief system is centered around God who is a spirit. The spirit world is real, and we, we know that there are powers both of good and evil, for the Bible tells us so. And many of us could probably share some experiences firsthand or someone else we know. I know because I've had conversations with those in our church who have seen things, who have experienced things um, that, that are not easy to explain. And we've got serious questions about this, fears and concerns about demon possession and, and what does it 
are we supposed to cast out demons? What does, what does that world look like? And as always, what matters most is what God's word has to say about these things. And so that's where we're going to go in our story um, where it takes us today. We're going to be talking a lot about power today as this kid is about to learn a lot about power um, in his own right. And so um, we got a couple of motions, all right? So we got, we got some kids hanging out with us too. And this helps keep adult, adults away too. Blair loved it in the first service. So um, two words. The first one is power. So if you hear the word power today, let me see your muscles, all right? Here we go. Sun's out, gun's out, all right? So we got power. And then the other one, we're going to go with the opposite, powerless. And we're going to go, all right? So power, powerless. You don't have to make them, that'll get distracting for me. Um, so when it comes to power, we all have a real problem, but there is a real solution. So let's look at the passage today, the problem, Matthew 14 verses, uh, Matthew 17 verses 14 to 17. First, first truth we're going to learn is everyone is powerless over evil without King Jesus. Verse 14, it says, and when they came to the crowd, who came to the crowd? If you were with us last week, this is transitioning out of the story of the transfiguration, where we saw Jesus in his glory transformed on the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John. And so the four of them are coming back down the mountain, and what they're going to experience is a father who is powerless. Let's check this out. End of 14, a man came up to him, Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For he, often he falls into the fire and often into the water. Now, what's going on here? The son, father has a son who's suffering from seizures. Some translations say epilepsy, but there's clearly some foul play at work as well as the son is being thrown into fire and thrown into water, being intentionally Put into harm's way. What's, what's going on? And this father, we see, can do nothing about it. He is powerless to do anything about it. And so he rightfully cries for mercy to Jesus on behalf of his son. But we're also going to see here the son is powerless, right? Poor everybody's. Clearly, the son isn't doing this on purpose, right? And, and just like his dad, he can't do anything to stop it. Now, what we're going to see here is that there is demonic activity at play. And yet we want to be careful to not just make a one-to-one, -one, that every time someone has a seizure or epilepsy, and that's not what we would call modern-day epilepsy, by the way, that it always means there's demonic activity. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was healing, we see that they're categorized differently. It says they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pain, those oppressed by dema, demons, comma, those having seizures, comma, and paralytic. So you see that they're here, they're, they're differentiated as well. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are also very complicated. And listen, just because there's, someone has a mental illness, just because someone has a physical illness, does not mean that there is necessarily demonic activity at play. does not mean that there's necessarily sin involved. Now, sometimes those things go together, but they don't always. So we got to be careful not to just mush categories um, together. We're also going to see here that the disciples were powerless. All right. Verse 16, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him, right? Throws the disciples right under the bus. Now, presumably these are the other nine disciples. Peter, James, and John had been with Jesus on the mountain, right? So these are the other nine of his 12, or, or maybe even some more. He had more than 12 that would follow him. And what we see is that these other disciples had been asked by the man to heal his son and they were not able to. And in fact, we're going to see here that everyone is powerless. Verse 17, 
And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Somebody got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. Jesus says this generation, this word means age. He says he's just looking around and he goes, everybody I'm seeing is faithless and twisted. And this hints at part of the problem that's going on here with the disciples. And what we're going to see is the father, the son, the disciples, this whole age, he says, powerless over evil, sin, and death. And we're going to find the same to be true in our hearts today on our own. But, that's the problem. But the solution, the solution we're going to see is that King Jesus has all power. All right, there's a little bit more positivity over evil. And we're to have faith in him. Let's look at the end of verse 17. He says, bring him here to me. Jesus says, bring me the man. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was instantly healed. So remember... Uh, Matthew's purpose in writing this gospel is to announce the king has come. Jesus is the Messiah king. In fact, Jesus, we come to find, is not just the king. He himself is God. And what do we know about our God? That he is all-powerful or sovereign, meaning all-powerful in, in, and in charge. I guess powerful is a play on power. We could do that. Uh, the winds and waves obey him. We've already seen that in our text. The demons obey him. When he tells the winds and waves to stop, when he tells the demon to go, they have to obey. He's in charge. Jesus, in fact, as the creator of the universe, is in charge over the universe. We've seen this before. What's in the word authority? Author. As the author of all creation, he is the authority over all creation. So when he rebukes this demon, the demon has to listen. Verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? The disciples go, Jesus, no. Like, why? what happened? Why, why did we fail to? Now, now, why are they so incredulous here? Well, remember back in Matthew chapter 10? Jesus gave them the authority and power to heal the sick, to cast out demons. And we saw as he sent them out in pairs, they did just that. So now why here? Seven chapters later, are they finding themselves unable to do so? Well, Jesus tells us the answer in in verse 20. He said to them, because of your little faith. Why? Because of your little faith. Now, it's important to see here, Jesus isn't talking about amounts. He's not saying, well, the recipe called for four cups of faith. You only had one cup. You have to run down to Safeway, buy another bag of faith, right? And we'll just throw a little more into the... It's gluten-free faith. Don't worry. We're cool. And he says, it's not about amounts. Uh, uh, N.T. Wright said it, or or no, excuse me, I'm a little ahead of myself. For truly I say to you, he says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, here what Jesus wants to show them is if you have even mustard seed sized faith. Now, the mustard seed was the smallest seed in the Middle East. So what's the point he's making here? If you had any faith at all, you could have done this. And what we learn is in our lives and in the disciples' lives, it's not about the size of our faith. It's about the size of our God. It's not the size of our faith, it's the size of our God. N.T. Wright said it this way, um, if you want to see the moon, it's not about the size of, of your window, it's about the direction the window is facing. So if you can't see the moon, you say, well, I've got to construct a bigger window or a prettier window or a stronger window. It, it has to be directing the moon to be able to see it, direction toward the moon, Right? So he's, this is not have more faith. This is, is, is the, soul, the window of our soul pointed at Jesus or is it pointed in a different direction? 
It's, it's not about how strong our faith is. It's not about us having the faith. It's, it's always about what is your faith in. It's the object of our faith. And he's saying here, your object of faith in this moment was not in God himself. Now, we don't want to read in. We don't know exactly what's going on with the disciples in this moment. But one thing we see characteristic of them and characteristic in our heart is that sometimes we can start to rely on technique. I remember when I, was, um, when I first started as a pastor about a little under five years ago, I walked into this whole thing, and it was a little bit easier to be humble because I legitimately had no idea what I was doing, right? I had not been to seminary before. I'd never been a pastor before. So it was easier to say, God, I need you. I don't know what I'm doing. But over time, as you get the reps in, it can be a little bit easier to start going, well, I've, I've, I've preached a few sermons now. I've, I've, I've done some counseling. I've ran some meetings. We've had some retreats. And, and you start relying on your own ability and technique and less on the Lord himself. And I would imagine that the first time a disciple cast out a demon, can you imagine how freaky that would be? Like here comes this guy at you foaming at the mouth and going, and you're just like, God, I need you. I don't know what I'm doing here. But you chuck a few demons out and you can start to get cocky and you can start walking around going, <laughs> I got the power. Bump, bump, bada, bada. We can have this kind of the Ghostbusters pack on, and they're just like demons, bring it on, right? Like as though they now have this magical power of Jesus that they can just do whatever they want with and control on their own. I'm reading into the text a little bit there. Um, what we see here, I love what, how Charles Price says it. He says, faith in God is an exclusive trust in his ability. Exclusive, meaning in nothing else. It's to say, God, without you working in and through me, I can do nothing. I have no power without its source. If I'm not plugged into the source, I can do nothing. But the power, you might say, to do what? Well, he says in verse 20 here, he says, if you have mustard seed-sized faith, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. That's pretty impressive. This was a Jewish figure of speech, which was, it, it talked about, it meant that you were describing an impossible task, right? And he says here, there's nothing that will be impossible for you. Nothing? Like literally nothing. So are we saying, if I have faith in God, I could look at Mount Readout and say, yo, you're coming to this side of the inlet, right? You're a little bit far away from me. I want a better view. And it hops, skips, and jumps across. Can, do I have the power? So I, do I have a, the power to say, I want a million dollars in my pocket right now? This is not saying that we just are like a superhero, that now we just have this power he's given us to wield in, in any way that we want. In the context here, Jesus told these disciples, I want you to go out and announce the kingdom. He gave them the ability and the command to cast out demons, heal the sick, and preach the gospel. And he says, if I've asked you to do it, I will give you the power to do so. Now Charles Price, again, he said it this way, our faith doesn't dictate to God what he must do. It allows him to do what he wills to do in our circumstance and situation. So faith in God doesn't mean now I can do whatever I want. It means now I can do whatever he wants. So think of it this way. If I place my faith in a pilot, look at this guy. Who wouldn't trust this guy? I am not determining the direction of the plane, right? If I believe in this pilot and his plane, I'm saying, I trust you to take me where, where you want to take me, where the ticket says to take me, right? I'm not determining direction. I'm trusting his ability to get me where he says he's going to take me. 
So faith says, whatever my king has told me to do, he will also give me the power to do it. And then I walk by faith. I do it. So what has he commanded us to do as believers? He says, go and make disciples. Go love one another as I have loved you. You understand the impossibility of that command without his power? You try to, for one hour in your life, put everybody else's comforts and interests before your own. You try to consistently be gentle and patient and kind and self-controlled and joyful and just always proclaiming the gospel and always having this, this unwavering trust in God. I mean, can any of us do that for a full day? Right? We see that what he's called us to do, we are powerless to do. But if he's called us to do it, he will give us the power to bring it to fruition. But, but the question today is, if Jesus told his disciples then to cast out demons, well, what about us today? What does that mean for his disciples today? And I, I want to spend the rest of the time this morning addressing this topic, because it's, I think a lot of questions hang in our minds regarding it. Can a, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Um, what does the Bible say that demons can do and can't do? Um, are we supposed to be casting them out today? Are, 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 and if so, how? We won't answer every question concretely, but I want us to take a biblical overview and I, and, we, and I always love starting with C.S. Lewis. He says this, this is quote is so helpful. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. The first one, he says, is to disbelieve in their existence. To say that they're not even a thing. The other, he says, is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And he says, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors. So what is he saying? He's saying that, that, that Satan and his, and his cronies, they want us to either believe they don't exist at all or to be consumed by fear of them. And he says both are errors. Um, Neil Anderson, in, in the best book that I've ever read on, on spiritual warfare and, and these truths, and, and I would recommend the read. I'm going to be quoting it at length today. He compares our approach to evil powers like germs. Timely illustration. Um, and, and we know that there are germs all around us, and there's a couple of approaches. We can take the germaphobe, hypochondriac uh, approach and just be totally freaked out about germs and the germs and, and that they're everywhere and they're out to get us. Or we can go to the other extreme and ignore them altogether. Now, we've seen in this time period, we've seen people on the spectrum, if you will. Um, and so, what's the right approach? The right approach, he says, is to not even focus on the germs at all, but a healthy lifestyle to eat the right foods, to exercise, to bathe, please bathe, to wash your hands, right? Social distance in certain cases. And he says, let your immune system protect yourself. I know we could open a can of worms there if we wanted to, but he says the demons are a little like invisible germs looking for someone to infect. Now, we've never been told in God's word that we need to fear, to be afraid of Satan or demons, but we are told to be aware of them right? He says, be sober-minded because the devil prowls like a roaring lion. He says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Paul says, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but it is a battle. There is a battle against the spiritual forces in our world. And what he says to do, what we see, what we see is just like with the germs, we're called to live right and trust God, just like our immune system, to do the protection so we don't have to be afraid, but we do need to be aware of them. So we want to take a brief look at where demons come from and, and what they can and can't do in our lives. So we're going to press the gas pedal here, get ready to, to, to run. Um, 
at some unknown point in time, we, we see in Revelation 12 that Lucifer, which was Satan's former name, and a third of the angels were cast out of heaven uh, to earth. They had rebelled against God, disobeyed him. So we know that demons are fallen angels, that they are now actively working against God instead of serving God. Um, but who's more powerful? The one who made them, right? He's still in control, uh, ultimately. Now, God, we know we come onto the scene at the beginning of the Bible. God created mankind, and he gives us the authority, uh, the power to rule over the earth, right? To image me and, and rule with me. But Adam's own little rebellion forfeits that authority. And so in the process, Satan becomes the, the rebel holder of authority of this world from the period of the fall at the beginning of Genesis until the cross. Because what happens at the cross? We know that Jesus died and he rose again, and Paul says he defeated earth's temporary authorities. Colossians 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and that's talking about the spiritual authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. They're defeated. And what we're going to see at the end of this book and that we're studying right now in Matthew, last chapter, third verse to the end, all authority, Jesus says, in heaven and earth has been given to me. So what does this mean for us? Well, you and I, we were born dead in sin born separated from God, born under the, uh, in, in subjection to the ruler of this world under that rebel authority. But, but when you, by faith, acknowledge Jesus as the true king, there's a kingdom transfer that takes place the Bible talks about. It says you move, Colossians 1, he says he has, Jesus delivered us from the domain of darkness, right? The realm where Satan and evil ruled and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We got a new citizenship now. Paul says in Philippians 3 that it's in heaven. It's in the realm that God works within his kingdom. And so the short answer is no, a demon can't possess me because I no longer belong to that realm, but to Jesus's realm. I belong to the Holy Spirit. However, until Christ returns and puts Satan in his cage, and that day is coming, Revelation 19 and 20, says that one day that lion will be caged. But until then, as we mentioned in 1 Peter, it, it, he's prowling. Be sober-minded, Peter says. Be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So the, the lion still prowls. And Paul says that we're still in this battle against that lion and the lion's pride. There's a play on words, because like it's a pack of, um, you know, lions, like the demons. But then also pride is in a word for arrogance. There's a word play. All right. Um, so what's that look like today? Satan has one weapon and one weapon only. And that is lies. Satan was defanged at the cross. That means he is powerless that he can't touch us, but Satan still has a mouth, and he's known. The Bible says that he is the father of lies. So, so he and his demon cronies are up to the same tactics that they were back in the garden. What do we see in the garden? Lies. They deceived and led astray Adam and Eve's minds into distrusting God's heart and therefore disobeying God's command. Now, how does this work? How does this play out in our lives? Neil Anderson gave me an illustration that's really helped me think about it. Um, so imagine for a second that you're standing at, at one end of this long, narrow street, 
and it's lined with these apartment buildings on either side. Now, at, at the other end of the street stands Jesus. And your Christian life is the process of walking down that street. Now, the street's empty, as you can see in this picture up here. There's absolutely nothing that can keep you from walking, progressing toward Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit as you keep your eyes on him. But since this world is still under Satan's influence, those apartments are lined with the enemy. Who, again, they might be trying to keep you from that goal, but remember, they can do nothing to block your path or even slow you down. So they hang out of the window and they cry out lies. There are three lies that we see. The first one, we see temptation. We see temptation. Uh, one of the things they do is they'll say, hey, look over here. Come here. Check out this fruit. Right? Look what I got in, in, in this place. It's way better than that boring, lame Christian walk thing. And, and what they'll do, the lie is that there is a better, more enjoyable, more satisfying uh, way. Don't follow Jesus. That's hard. That's boring. That's lame. Temptation. The second one we see as we move down the street is accusation. Who do you think you are? God doesn't love you. Look at you. You'll never be good enough. Satan's also called the accuser. See, he'll tempt us to do wrong, and then he taunts us when we fail. And he heaps on the, the guilt and the shame. Then we walk down the road further, we, we hear doubts. We hear doubts. God isn't real. There's nothing at the end of that street. Are you kidding me? It's all make-believe. Reading your Bible, praying to, to what? It's all pointless. Church is a game. Just give up. And see, deception is subtle. And Anderson says it normally takes place in first person. In other words, it, it lodges into our mind. And we know, and we got our flesh, right? We got our own sin. We can't blame everything on Satan. But these lies that he comes, they usually come in first person. I'm not good enough. I've sinned too much. Maybe I don't believe this thing. And he lodges these little seeds of doubt in our brain that start to grow like a cancer. Now, what's the enemy's goal? He wants to slow you down, right? He wants to stop your progress from moving down the, the road. Now, we are redeemed by Jesus forever. The devil can never own us. He can't physically stop us. But if he can just get us to listen to the thoughts planted in our minds, and he can influence, uh, influence us, right? If we allow him to, he can stop our progress. And so what do we do? How do we respond? There's, there's three responses, uh, three options we have. The first one is to pay attention to the liars. Pay attention to the liars. And 1 Timothy 4 explicitly says, don't do that. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. They will start walking in those apartment buildings. Paying attention to deceitful, lying, like we said, spirits, and the teachings of demons. See, most defeated Christians are those who are listening to the lies, believing the lies, and they've stopped walking down the road. Secondly, we can argue with the liars, we can argue with them. Now, this is just as unproductive when we stop and we try to argue. Say, I'm not ugly, you're ugly, Right? Not a, that's not truth, that's a lie. We engage. Now, at first, that seems noble, right? At first, that seems maybe even right to try to argue with the lies. But here's the problem. The, 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 the enemy is still setting the agenda. 
we're still allowing them to control the conversation, and we've still stopped, and when we're arguing, we're not progressing down the road. So the third, the third option is to keep your eyes on the truth. Keep your eyes on the truth. Have you ever tried to walk in a straight line while you're looking the other, the, uh, off to the side? That's impossible, right? You, you're just going to have problems. So what we're going to do is to fix our eyes at the end of that street on, on Jesus. To not believe the liars, to not dialogue with them, not to pay any attention to them, Paul says to Timothy. And when those fiery arrows inevitably fly, the arrows of accusation and temptation and doubt, what are our weapons against them? What does Ephesians 6 say when Paul talks about the armor of God? He says, take on the shield of faith. As I believe, as my eyes are fixed on Jesus, I know that by faith I'm, it's defending me against the lies that are being hurtled at me. I got the belt of truth on, right? I remember what's true so that I don't fall down and stumble. I got the helmet of salvation on. And he protects me as I walk down that road. Now, it's important to see, Anderson brings this out as well, what we're engaged in with the enemy is not a power encounter, it's a truth encounter. It is a truth encounter. And here's what we mean. We're not arm wrestling Satan. We're not trying to over, overpower him, right? So don't think we're not doing the force in, from Star Wars. This is in Harry Potter, Voldemort, one-on-one. If I can just push a little bit harder than him, I can win back some turf. That's not the grounds that we're fighting with him. It's not, it's not about power. It's about truth. Why? Because he says we're standing firm. In this battle, we're standing firm on the ground that's already been won for us. The blood-bought turf of the victory of Jesus. We don't have to advance into enemy territory. He's fought the fight. The battle's been won. It says in Colossians 2, remember we said he disarmed the rulers and authorities, triumphed over them. It's already been done. And how did he do that? How did he triumph? One verse earlier tells us by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, so here's what he means by that. The way that, that Jesus took care of Satan was by taking care of sin. See, because now the, all the accusers' words, they're, they're lies. One of my favorite lines, uh, in, in, before the throne of God above, it says... When Satan tempts me to despair, when he starts to lodge those lies in there, I, I'm going to give up. I can't do it. I can't, I can't continue down the road. When he tells me of the guilt within, I'm too dirty. I'm too broken. I've gone too far the wrong direction. What does he say we do? Upward I look and see him there. I look forward and onward. I keep my eyes on Jesus who made an end to all of my sin. Made an end of all of my sin. The truth. If you ever uh, read or, or seen the, the Narnia movies, you remember um, Edmund has betrayed his siblings. And the evil witch, who is represented, representing the devil, reminds Aslan, who's the lion representing Jesus, she reminds him of this, what they call the, the deep magic from the dawn of time. And she says, written on this stone table was the following, every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey. And that for every treachery, I have the right to kill. She says, the law says that if anybody betrays, which Edmund had done, then rightfully he belongs to me and I have the right to kill him. And that was true. Aslan couldn't reverse that. It was written on stone. 
But what happened? Aslan died in Edmund's place. And when he rises again, he reminds those girls, had the queen looked back a little bit further from before time, she would have seen the deeper magic from before the dawn of time. And what was written there? When a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. You see, when the accuser accuses you, he's right. right? We, we have violated what was written on stone. We have sinned. And we do deserve death. And that stands. But the accuser is also absolutely wrong. Because we are no longer condemned. Why? Because the sinless king was killed in our stead. Canceling the debt. Paying the price. And so now we are forgiven because he was forsaken. We are accepted because he was condemned. And now the sin and death and Satan have been defeated. And the road is wide open. Amen? Neil Anderson... Again, he, he was talking about a counseling session he was in. He talked about a woman who he, he says was severely demonized. She was a, a, a bigger gal. And she jumps up and starts coming at him with this menacing look in her eyes. Now, what did he do? Right? Did he go Jesus ninja on her? Right? Karate! Yeah! What did he do? How did he fight her? No, he says, I, I just simply, I, I spoke words based on first John 5, 18. It says, but he who was born of God protects him. Who was born of God? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And he said, I simply looked, I spoke directly to that evil spirit, and said, I'm a child of God, and you can't touch this. And he says, go sit down. And this woman stopped dead in her tracks, returned to her chair, and sat down. He said, man, I was tempted to be afraid, right? That's a, that's a scary situation. But this is not a power encounter. I claimed the authority of Jesus. But that demon had to listen. See, we talk about what, what does it look like? And we know that, that demon activity was heightened at Jesus' time, that we saw a lot more of that then than now as far as demonic possession. But we clearly see this at work today. And it's not about this, it's not some weird voodoo magic. This is not garlic on a vampire. This is not any sort of, we don't have to, well, do I know the exact right words to say? If something like this happens, right, do I, is it, is it a, a certain volume that I have to, like, yell in order they can hear? It's, this is not about, remember what we said, this is not about us relying on technique. We are powerless to cast out demons on our own. We are powerless over sin in our lives, let alone somebody else's life. And so the key for the disciples then and the key for his disciples now is to have faith, not in a technique, not in our own power, but in Jesus Christ himself who has all the power, and who has already defeated sin and Satan and death. And we stand in his victory. Father, we thank you for the victorious Jesus, the risen Jesus, seated at the right hand of God. We, we thank you that he has already fought the fight and the battle's been won, and that anything Satan wants to accuse us with, anything he wants to bring, that we, can, we, can, we don't even have to listen to it, we don't even have to pay attention to it, that we continue to focus on Jesus and Father, I know there are people in this room, we're all over the place today. Some of us have never even started down that road toward Jesus. 
Some of us have been walking it for a while, but all of us have experienced those temptations. I pray for those in this room today that are hearing and even have succumbed to those temptations, who have veered off the path into some of those rooms, and they've seen the fruitless trouble that brings. It's never going to satisfy. It's not better. Those are lies. I want to pray for, for those who have heard the accusations, and maybe right now they're battling with something they've done in their past when they did succumb to a temptation. They're hearing the words that they are too dirty, that they have gone too far down the wrong road, that they could never be forgiven from what they've done. Father, I pray for those that are struggling with those doubts. Maybe there's somebody in here going, I don't even know if this whole thing is real. This is just a game. This is a crutch people lean on to make themselves feel better about stuff. Father, wherever we're at, we know the solution is to take our eyes off ourselves and put them on Jesus. To stop listening to the lies and and to be reminded of what is true. That one came, and yes, we are guilty, but no longer has Jesus paid the price for us, rose to give us new life, and now in him we stand spotless, acceptable, and he protects us. If he said he'll get us to the end of the street by his power, by his grace, by his authority, he will. And no demon and nobody, other person in this world can stop us. Father, may we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in his living, glorious, victorious beautiful name that we pray. Amen.